Winston Churchill had a wife named Clementine. It's true. One day, Clementine was talking to a street sweeper. What did you talk about for so long? asked Sir Winston. She smiled. Many years ago, he was madly in love with me. Churchill smiled. So, you could have been the wife of a street sweeper. Oh no, my love, Clementine replied. If I had married him, he would have been the prime minister. (laughs) I, I, I offer that to you because... Everybody that has any accomplishments, and sometimes <clears throat> the way in a, in a biblical society and in a, in a society such as ours, our own little <clears throat> world that we live in and that we swim in, <clears throat> the men get a lot of attention, <clears throat> but the ladies deserve a lot of support and they deserve a lot of thank yous for the work that they do and the support that they give to their husbands Amen. and to their sons. And were it not for our wives and mothers, uh, you know, we wouldn't be able to really do much of anything right. Um, if, if it were just myself and Martin and Jamie and Nathan and, you know, if we were just together without any women, we would just be barbarians in the timber. And <laughs> Things wouldn't amount... We, There wouldn't be much to offer. So our wives and our mothers really deserve a great deal of credit and blessing for anything that we're able to accomplish. So women, I want to commend you for all that you do. All right, our title tonight, our lesson tonight is going to be a story from the life of King Manasseh. He's not a well-known king of ancient Israel and Judah, but he's worth looking at. So what we're looking at today on this evening of repentance, sackcloth and ashes, we're looking at the concept of delayed repentance. And King Manasseh is an excellent life story for us to consider on this concept. Now, we might just start off, and we're going to be studying Manasseh, by just simply answering a few questions about him. Who was Manasseh? Who was King Manasseh? Many of us have heard of King David and Solomon, and maybe some of us recall King Jeroboam, or maybe... King Zedekiah, he's easy to remember. He was the last one, right? His name started with a Z. But all those in the middle, there's a whole bunch. They're just a big blur. We're probably a little better than one of my students that I had in a history class when I was teaching a freshman world history class at at college. And I I mentioned King David. He said, well, is that King David? Was he king of, was that France? Well, I knew I was in trouble, but I was doing my best to teach them a little bit of ancient world history and weave a little bit of scripture in. 
King Manasseh. What was his situation when he became king? Well, it turns out King Manasseh was the 14th king of the nation of Judah. This was the separate nation of Judah, when Israel and Judah were separated. He was the 14th king. He was the son of King Hezekiah. And he came to the throne in the year 696 B.C. Nobody knew it at the time, but he was going to have a long reign. He was young. He was only about 12 years old. Now, Hezekiah was well remembered. Hezekiah was remembered for his righteousness, his virtue. He was very well liked by the people, beloved even. His father Hezekiah is remembered for his survival from a terrible Assyrian campaign that had been launched against Israel and against Judah. It was successful against Israel, the northern kingdom, but it was unsuccessful against the little nation of Judah. And the mighty Assyrian emperor Sennacherib returned home somewhat humbled. Turns out that Manasseh, though, was not like his father. And the first portion of his reign, the bulk of his reign, was very different. Manasseh was exceptionally wicked. He is perhaps the worst king Judah ever had. To really get a sense of Hezekiah's reign, we need to take a few minutes and get to know this young king. I would invite you to open up to 2 Chronicles chapter 33. And let's read, a, let's read this passage. 2 Chronicles chapter 33. I believe it's rather important, actually, that we read and try to digest these words, these ten verses. So again, in honor of the Holy Word of God, if you don't mind turning to that passage and be standing for just a few minutes, we're going to read 2 Chronicles 33, 1 through 10. We're going to read that as a group, as a congregation. This is the key setting of our lesson tonight. So to understand where we're going and what we can derive from this man and his life lesson, let's read together the first 10 verses of 2 Chronicles, chapter number 33. We'll read in a responsive way. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 50 and 5 years in Jerusalem. For he built again the high places which Hezekiah his father had broken down, and he reared up altars for Balaam, and made groves, and worshipped all the hosts of heaven, and served them. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord.
And he set a carved image, the idol which he had made, in the house of God, which Solomon had said to David and to Solomon his son, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen before all the tribes of Israel, will I put my name forever. So Manasseh made Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to err, and to do worse than the heathen whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. Thank you very much. You may be seated. As you can see from this reading, Manasseh was uniquely and exceptionally evil, wicked, foolish, and corrupt. There are other details of his reign that we can add to this. This isn't even the whole story. Now it turns out that the chronicles and the stories of the kings are given in two different portions of the Old Testament. The story of Manasseh's reign is not recorded only in 2 Chronicles 33, but it's also recorded in 2 Kings chapter 21. Let me read for you just a few tidbits that we find in this other account of the reign of King Manasseh. 2 Kings 21, verse number 9. It says, Manasseh seduced his people to do more evil than did the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the children of Israel. That's telling us that Manasseh was more wicked than the Canaanites. Let's continue in 2 Kings 21, verse 10. And the Lord spake by his servants the prophets, saying, Because Manasseh, king of Judah, hath done these abominations, and hath done wickedly above all that the Amorites did, which were before him, and hath made Judah also to sin with his idols, Therefore, thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing such evil upon Jerusalem and Judah, that whosoever heareth it, it both his ears shall tingle. Exceptional judgment was coming. People that heard of this judgment, it was going to be shocking to their ears. Verse 13 in 2 Kings, this is the word of God, what he says he's going to do. I will stretch over Jerusalem the line of Samaria and the plummet of the house of Ahab. That means, now that, that meant something to that generation. Because Samaria had just been destroyed utterly by the mighty Assyrian empire. And Ahab's house was gone. It was destroyed. God continues. I'm still in 2 Kings 21, verse 13. I will wipe Jerusalem as a white man wipeth a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. Now here's an image for you. It's like someone doing dishes. 
And you got to get it clean. And you want the filth out of the bowl. And so you wipe it and you scrub it and you clean it and you wipe it and you scrub it and then you inspect it and you say, now it's clean. So God is doing his best to capture their attention. That's not all. If we drop down to verse 16 of the same chapter, we have this recorded. Some obscure scribe who recorded the book of 2 Kings by inspiration of God had this to say in verse 16. Moreover, Manasseh, and this is simply a historic statement. Moreover, Manasseh shed innocent blood very much till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another beside his sin wherewith he made Judah to sin in doing that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. You know, there's a passing reference in the book of Hebrews chapter 11, verse 37. You might remember Hebrews chapter 11. It's, a, it's kind of a famous chapter. It's a chapter of faith. It's a chapter that has many men and ladies listed. Heroes of the faith of the Old Testament. By faith Abraham, by faith Isaac, by faith Joseph, by faith Jephthah, and Gideon, and so forth. By faith the harlot Rahab. There's many people listed here out of the Old Testament. And then it goes on to discuss those who are not mentioned by name. Saints of the Old Testament that suffered greatly. And verse 37 describes some of them that suffered greatly. Now these are Old Testament saints. Hebrews chapter 11. I'll begin at verse 36. Others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings. Yea, moreover of bonds and imprisonment. And they were stoned. They were sawn asunder, tempted, slain with the sword, wandered about in sheepskin, goatskins, etc., etc., on it goes. Now that passing reference to someone who was sawn asunder, evidently, many scholars believe that was the prophet Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah was put to death by being cut in half with a large saw like a log. And the man who did it was Manasseh. King Manasseh is responsible for the death of Isaiah. He didn't like Isaiah's prophecies. He didn't like Isaiah's predictions. He didn't like Isaiah putting his finger at the king and telling him that God was not pleased. You know, the historian Josephus writes a history of Israel. And in his history of the Old Testament, he discusses many kings, including King Manasseh. And this is how Josephus describes the reign in this particular point. He says, Manasseh, setting out from a contempt of God, he barbarously killed all the righteous men that were among the Hebrews, nor would he spare the prophets. For every day he killed some of them until Jerusalem was overflowing with blood. This is King Manasseh. 
He led the people in idolatry. He led them in abominations, in the desecration of the temple, placing idols in the holy place, in the courtyards. The temple of Solomon, filled with idols and abominations. This was King Manasseh. The people were not upset about this. The people were pleased. Manasseh was not an unpopular king. The high places in Israel were filled with such abominations. The groves had idols in abundance. There was immorality and blasphemies across the land. Why were the people of Judah prone to these abominations? Such wild abominations. Why were they prone to this? Well, it's, it's a little hard for us to really capture the spirit of the times. But if you use your imagination, you might be able to grasp it. Bear in mind that little Judah was a small nation, not considered particularly powerful or strong. It was not sophisticated. It was not cosmopolitan. It was far from the great centers of power. Egypt, Assyria, cities to the west were rising. A small city named Rome was rising up. Athens, indeed even Carthage. Carthage, you might recall. Carthage was a great center of the worship of Baal, where they sacrificed children in large numbers. All of these abominations and all of this idolatry was that which was practiced by all the great nations, all the centers of power, all the cosmopolitan places, all the people who were anybody participated in these abominations. And so the people of Judah, desirous to be in step with the times, and Manasseh, believing that this would enhance his reputation with other nations round about, and garner the admiration of other kings and potentates that were nearby, he wanted to be like them. And so when we say, why were the people of Judah... And why was Manasseh, why were they prone to such abominations? It's very much the same reason that we struggle today. It's because they wished to appear cosmopolitan. They wanted to be sophisticated. They wanted to seem educated, upgraded. The worship of Jehovah was seen as backward. A deity for hillbillies and retrograde fanatics. No one who knew anything worshipped Jehovah. No one who had any education worshipped Jehovah. No one who had any sophistication. No one who had any money, power, wealth, influence, knew how to dress, kept up with the fashions, no one like that worshipped Jehovah. That's why the people of Judah 
in Manasseh was eager to offend their covenant God in the way that we've described. Well, something happened to change things. <laughs> it turns out that the Assyrians weren't finished. The Assyrians returned later in the reign of Manasseh after many years. And a particular Assyrian king named Ezra Hayden captured the city of Jerusalem. Manasseh attempted to flee, but King Manasseh was captured. He was taken. Tradition says he was hiding in a patch of thorn bushes when the armies of Ezra Hayden, the king of Assyria, caught up with King Manasseh. In 2 Chronicles, we'll discover that Manasseh was dragged in chains to the refurbished city of Babylon. At that point in time, that was also under the rule of the mighty Assyrians. Babylon's great future was yet to come. At this moment in time, the city of Babylon was under the thumb of the Assyrians, and Ezra Hayden was actually rebuilding and beautifying the city of Babylon because his small provincial capital of Nineveh was too modest. And he needed a grander, larger city. Babylon seemed to suit, and so he was in the process of refurbishing the city of Babylon and making it a prime jewel in the great Assyrian Empire. And Babylon needed slaves. Babylon needed workers. Babylon needed people. And so many of the children of Judah were taken. This would have been about the year 650 BC. They were taken to Babylon. Manasseh himself was chained up and dragged to the city of Babylon as well. <clears throat> Second Chronicles 33 verse 11 tells us this. If we return to the book of history in scripture, it says in verse 11, Wherefore the Lord brought upon them the captains of the host of the king of Assyria, which took Manasseh among the thorns, bound him with fetters, and carried him to Babylon. But something happened in Babylon, something that we probably wouldn't have predicted. <laughs> Manasseh repented. Manasseh, this evil, wicked, abominable slayer of prophets, murderer of the innocents, idolater deluxe, came to repentance in fetters, in the city of Babylon, under the thumb of the mighty Assyrians. He repented. In fact, there is a prayer of King Manasseh that's re that is found in the Apocrypha. It's referenced in a number of other historic sources. I cannot confirm that this is... 100% uh, valid, but it seems like it might be. I'd like to take a minute for you and, and read this prayer. This is the prayer of King Manasseh when he was found in the dungeon, chained to a wall. 
in the city of Babylon. This is what Manasseh says. I'm going to read this. O Lord Almighty, God of our ancestors, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and of their righteous offspring, you who made heaven and earth with all their order, who shackled the sea by your word of command, who confined the deep and sealed it with your terrible and glorious name, at whom all things shudder and tremble before your power, for your glorious splendor cannot be borne, and the wrath of your threat to sinners is unendurable. Yet immeasurable and unsearchable is your promised mercy. For you are the Lord Most High of great compassion, long-suffering, and very merciful. And you relent at human suffering. O Lord, according to your great goodness, you have promised repentance and forgiveness to those who have sinned against you. And in the multitude of your mercies, you have appointed repentance for sinners, that they may be saved. Therefore, you, O Lord God of the righteous, have not appointed repentance for the righteous, for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who did not sin against you, but you have appointed repentance for me, who am a sinner. For the sins I have committed are more in number than the sand of the sea. My transgressions are multiplied, O Lord. They are multiplied. I am not worthy to look up and see the height of heaven because of the multitude of my iniquities. I am weighted down with many an iron fetter, so that I am rejected because of my sins. And I have no relief, for I have provoked your wrath and have done what is evil in your sight, setting up abominations and multiplying offenses. And now I bend the knee of my heart, imploring you for your kindness. I have sinned, O Lord, I have sinned, and I acknowledge my transgressions. I earnestly implore you, forgive me, O Lord, forgive me. Do not destroy me with my transgressions. Do not be angry with me forever, or store up evil for me. Do not condemn me to the depths of the earth. For you, O Lord, are the God of those who repent, and in me you will manifest your goodness. For unworthy as I am, you will save me according to your great mercy, and I will praise you continually all the days of my life. For all the host of heaven sings your praise, and yours is the glory forever. Amen. That's the prayer of Manasseh. Well, it turns out that God heard that prayer. It was not uttered in vain. If we turn to our text in 2 Chronicles chapter 33, we'll continue the story in verse 12. It says, And when he was in affliction, Manasseh besought the Lord his God, and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers, and prayed unto him, and was entreated of him, and heard his supplication. And brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord, he was God. Amen. Glory to God. <laughs> so remarkably, God had mercy on this man. Amen. After decades 
of evil and wickedness. Decades, I say, of evil and wickedness. God had mercy on this man when he repented and gave him back his throne. And he was returned as a vassal king in Jerusalem. His throne was restored. Now the latter part of Manasseh's reign is remarkable. We got to continue this story, you see. It doesn't end there. It turns out the latter part of his reign, which was not many years, and the, the chroniclers, as near as I can tell, didn't, weren't, don't know how many years of his 55 years constitute this latter portion. But it is not many. But the latter part of his reign, a few years, was one of extraordinary faithfulness to Jehovah. Faithfulness. He truly was a changed man. Let's pick up the story in verse 14 of 2 Chronicles. Now after this, he built a wall without the city of David, on the west side of Gihon in the valley, even to the entering at the fish gate, compassed about Ophel, and raised up a very great height, and put captains of war in all the fenced cities of Judah. So he built a wall around the city, fortified it. But that's not what's important. Let's continue. And he took away the strange gods and the idol out of the house of the Lord and all the altars that he had built in the mount of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem and cast them out of the city. And he repaired the altar of the Lord and sacrificed thereon peace offerings and thank offerings and commanded Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. How did the people respond? Well, the next verse gives us a clue. It's a little unclear, but the next verse tells us something. Verse 17, Nevertheless, the people did sacrifice still in the high places, yet unto their, the Lord their God only. But continuing, verse 18, Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh and his prayer unto his God and the words of the seers that spoke to him in the name of the Lord God of Israel, behold, they are written in the book of the kings of Israel. His prayer also, and how God was entreated of him, and all his sin, and his trespass, and the places wherein he built high places, and set up groves and graven images before he was humbled, behold, they are written among the sayings of the seers. So Manasseh slept with his fathers, and they buried him in his own house. Now, so Manasseh's reign comes to an end. There's some important questions we need to ask and see if we can answer about the reign of King Manasseh. And about a man such as this. Manasseh might not be... The only man who ever lived, who lived a wickedness of evil, disregard for God, and then late in life came to repentance in a genuine way. So how was Manasseh remembered? 
What was Manasseh's legacy? What did people say about him after he was gone? What did the scribes and the historians, after he passed away, what did they say about King Manasseh? What should we think about King Manasseh? What conclusions should be drawn? What lessons should we learn? Well, the first point is this. I'm on the back of the outline for those who enjoy following along. I think it's fair to say this. Despite his late-in-life profound repentance, his reign is marked as one of the most wicked in all the kings of either Israel or Judah. Secondly, the impact of his failures are the reasons cited for Judah's final destruction. This was 56 years after his death. Now, if you'd like to read that for yourself, you can turn to 2 Kings chapter 24. Now, between 2 Kings chapter 21 and chapter 24, many things had changed. The mighty Assyrian Empire had crumbled. And the city of Babylon, the one that the Assyrian Empire, Emperor Ezra Hayden, was busy refurbishing and rebuilding... That city rose up in rebellion against the Assyrians, overthrew them, and completely subsumed the entire Assyrian Empire as their own. Babylon now emerged in the intervening 56 years as the greatest world empire of the time. And so in chapter 24... Little Judah is no longer worried about the mighty Assyrians. Now, they have a new terrifying enemy, the Babylonians. And chapter 24 describes the coming of the Babylonians. And the final end of Judah and Jerusalem. Second Kings 24, verse 1. In his days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up. It goes on to describe his attack upon the little nation of Judah. And then we have a description of all of the details of the following campaign. How the existing king of Judah at that moment, Jehoiachin, was captured and Many, many things happened, and then a vassal was placed on the throne, Zedekiah, but he didn't last long, and he was taken down. But whose fault was it? 2 Kings 24, verse 3, tells us, Surely at the commandment of the Lord came this upon Judah, to remove them out of his sight, for the sins of Manasseh, according to all that he did. And also for the innocent blood that he shed. For he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, which the Lord would not pardon. That's pretty tough. He's been dead 56 years. And Manasseh gets the blame. 
Manasseh is the one to blame. His reputation as the most wicked king of Israel remained, despite his late in life repentance. That's pretty tough. Pretty sobering. It's not really the way I would have said it ought to end. It's not really necessarily how I would have proposed that we remember the story. All right, well, let's think now together. And let's see what we can learn about this life of King Manasseh and his delayed repentance. His delayed repentance. What can we conclude? And how can we make this practical for ourselves? I'm not here to judge Manasseh. I'm not here to stand in God's stead. I'm not here to accrue to little, the little nation of Judah or any of its latter kings or its prophets or its people whose fault it was. That's not my business. It's not, I, I don't have that understanding. It's not for me, it's really not for you probably either to say, whose fault was it? How do we divide out the blame for the final destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C.? But, perhaps there's something we can learn from it. Even if we can't parcel out the blame and shouldn't really even try, there might be some lessons we can draw from the life of King Manasseh. The first thing is this that I would ask you to consider. As we think about our own lives, and the vicissitudes, and the ups and downs, and the backs and forth, and the passing of the months that slip away into years, and before you know it, several decades have gone by, and a new generation is rising up. As we think about our own lives, let us not make Manasseh's mistake and only repent after your life falls apart. You see, Manasseh did not repent until he hit the depths and the darkness of the dungeon. And he felt the fetters on his wrists and his ankles. And the shadows closed in upon him. And then he remembered. Oh yeah. Isaiah warned me about this. Some of those other prophets told me this might happen. What a fool I have been. But you see, he didn't remember that. That didn't enter his head. He didn't open his mind and his heart until his life and his kingdom were completely broken. Let's not make that mistake. Don't make the mistake and say, I'll consider that later. Don't make the mistake that says, there's time. I have plenty of time. Don't make the mistake, I'm busy. I've got other things. I have other ambitions. I have things I wish to do that God would probably frown upon. 
I've got other priorities. Let's not make the mistake of delayed repentance. Now a second tough, tough lesson, unpleasant lesson, one that probably would not be well received in many congregations. And I don't know how well received it'll be here tonight, but I think it's true. The ill effects of protracted sin cannot be instantly undone in your life. God's forgiveness may have saved the soul of King Manasseh, but it didn't save his reputation. And it didn't save all of his people. And it didn't undo the harm he had done. It didn't bring back to life again the prophets he had slain. They couldn't find Isaiah's two body halves and stitch them back together again. The evil Manasseh had done was done. And it couldn't be unwound or reversed. The ill effects of protracted sin in your life cannot be instantly undone. Now this is true on a personal level. We're not kings. We don't have the ability to order people executed. We don't, can't order someone to be cut in half. Good thing, probably a few of us who might. But it's true on a personal level that the ill effects of protracted sin can't be undone in your life. It may include your health, your mental, emotional, and spiritual habits that you have formed over a period of many, many years. You can't undo the ill effects, many years of smoking, of alcohol use, or a variety of other things. If you have a have lived a life of immorality and you have sadly developed a venereal disease, you're not suddenly healed. And there's a long list of possible ill effects of protracted sin that we could discuss that are not quite that dramatic, but nonetheless they're real in our lives. A life filled with bitterness and unforgiveness and broken friendships and damaged relationships. You can't just wave a, a wand and make everybody friends with you again. It's going to take a lot of work. If you have the time. Now this is also true for the people around you that your sin has impacted. If you have harmed your wife, your children, your neighbors, the people you worship with, if you've been abrasive, if you've been difficult, if you've been headstrong, if you've been stubborn, if you've been rebellious, if you have a damaged relationship with your pastor, with your employer, it's going to take some work to repair all of that damage. 
if you can, and if you have the time. Manasseh didn't have much time, as it turns out. He didn't reign for 110 years. He didn't have five decades to raise up two or three new generations of godly Israelites who would have not known the wickedness of his former life. His repentance was very late in life. And the delayed repentance had some sobering, tough consequences. The next, if you exercise any level of leadership, all of what I'm describing for you is a very sobering reality. In the case of a king, it affects the entire kingdom. In the case of a father, it affects the entire family. In the case of a pastor, it affects the entire congregation. In the case of a mature man or lady, a patriarch or a matriarch with children, grandchildren, nieces and nephews, the damage affects many people. So you have any leadership whatsoever. It's going to impact those around you if your repentance is delayed. And as I mentioned already, your rep reputation cannot be rapidly reversed. Turns out, people may not trust you. And why would they? Would you have trusted Manasseh when he returned from Babylon? And said, I'm changed. I'm a new man. Let's take down the idols. Oh, you prophets. Those that are hiding in the wilderness and are still alive that I didn't manage to find last year. Come on out. Come on out. It's a free pass. Have, give, your, give it your best in the town square. Say what you like. Speak freely in public. Oh, I know. I, that's true. I remember. Yes, yes, indeed. I remember. Yes, yes. Your mentor, Isaiah. It's true. I, I did cut him in half. But I won't do that to you. I promise. Cross my fingers. I mean it. You can trust me. Your reputation cannot be rapidly reversed when you have indulged in a life of sin. People may not trust you. Indeed, St. Paul, this is interesting, but St. Paul himself, in the years following his conversion, he was not trusted by many of the early Christians. You might recall in the book of Acts, Immediately following the stoning of Stephen, Paul was given a commission to track down and become a, shall we say, a first century federal marshal with all the power of a, of a, of a, of a, of a government agency behind him to find, arrest, and even put to death as many Christians as he could lay his hands on. 
and he zealously did so for a short time. And so the early Christians, the early converts in the city of Antioch and Damascus, they didn't trust Paul. When Paul came back a couple of years later and said, I'm a Christian, they were, their first response was, sure you are. You're, you're, you're the man that arrested my, my cousin and left him in the dungeon till he came out with leprosy. Now, there are practical limitations that may follow you the rest of your life. You may never be able to do some of the things that you would have been able if you had not indulged in the years of sin. That's a hard thing. But that's the world that we live in whether we wish to or not. That is reality in this life and this world. This has nothing to do with your eternal destiny, the salvation of your soul. It is simply reality. A reality that many people don't want to consider. Because they would rather enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. And delay repentance. Now I don't want to... I don't want to be too gloomy. God's grace offers mitigation. God's grace can do wonderful things, not just in the world to come, but in this life too. But the impact in this life of sin will not be fully and completely erased in this world. Now for those of you who are thinking, well, I thought our sins were separated from the east to the west. Well, that's speaking of God's eternal record and your eternal destiny in the presence of Christ. If you smoke for many years and then become a Christian and throw the cigarettes away, your lung cancer simply doesn't disappear. And the spiritual damage done to your soul and the harm you've done to relationships round about you doesn't instantly dissipate in your life any more than it did in Manasseh's. To understand, though, the function of God's grace, I'd like to offer a comparison, and I hope this comparison is an apt one. But consider the life of Manasseh in contrast to the life of Paul. Both men had a phase of their life that was steeped in evil and wickedness. And you say, well, what are you talking about with St. Paul? Well, I've just described it a few moments ago. St. Paul was an evil and wicked man for a short time after the stoning of Stephen. He was literally responsible for the deaths and physical harm to many, many Christians who are utterly innocent of that which he charged them. But there is a difference between Manasseh and Paul. And I would say this is the primary one. I can't judge the depth of Manasseh's conversion and how genuine it was. 
But from what I can read in Scripture, it appears that it was a fully genuine, bona fide state of repentance, and his contrition was true and full in every way. And as near as I can tell, which is hard to reconcile with the reputation of being the worst king in Israel, as near as I can tell, if I am so fortunate to enter the realms of glory in the presence of Christ, Manasseh might be there to meet me. Now that's a little hard for me to reconcile with his reputation. Yet the Bible states and seems to indicate that his repentance was full, complete, and genuine. Just very, very late. Now Paul, by contrast, and by God's grace, Paul's life, Paul's evil deeds were a very short period early in life. And then his excellent and lengthy service for Christ far overshadowed his former sin. We could be here all evening discussing the contributions, the wisdom, the sacrifice, the insight, the blessing of St. Paul in planting church after church, in exhorting sinners to repentance, in writing letter after letter that still teach us thousands of years later, 2,000 years later, we still study the writings of St. Paul for wisdom and understanding about the workings of God. It's no question that Paul's life was turned around and his repentance was genuine. And Paul was not that much different than Manasseh in this respect. Both men repented only when God placed them under extraordinary pressure and persecution. Paul's repentance was not on, of his own volition. He was cast to the ground and blinded. And in that moment, on the dirt, blind, Paul's hard shell opened up. Just like Manasseh's hard shell finally opened up in a dank, smelly, dirty dungeon. But it's not accurate to say that Paul and Manasseh should really be viewed the same. The one man's repentance came early in life, followed by an extraordinary life of service, dedication, and personal sacrifice to the utmost, even giving his very life for Christ. That's St. Paul. The other man gave up very little. And while his repentance was genuine, it was too late to dedicate his life to the service of Jehovah. It was too late. There was not much life left to dedicate. So, <laughs> I'd like to summarize and conclude with just a simple statement of reality in my, from my perspective. And this simple reality really can't be overemphasized. Do not delay your repentance. Large, small, whether it's involving someone next to you, 
whether it's involving someone in your family or your neighbor, if it's involving a private sin between you and your Creator, whatever is in your life that you know shouldn't be there, root it out now. Don't wait until you're cast into a dungeon with fetters around your ankles and your wrists. We all know that eternal life with Christ awaits you if your repentance is genuine. But your usefulness in this world for the kingdom of God depends on your action now. Depends if you're going to repent now or if you're going to delay. Are you going to be useful to God? Are you going to be a St. Paul... Or are you going to be a Manasseh? What will God be able to do with you? And how much time do you have to dedicate your life to the service of our Father in Heaven? The congregation doesn't mind. I'd I'd ask that you take your small little prayer book. If you don't mind, please. There's a hymn in the back, number 61. If you'd be standing with me, please. I'm going to ask now that we sing this song, all three verses, and I pray that you would take this as an opportunity to reflect and think about your own life and your own station, about the years that have passed in your life and about the years that remain. And if anyone would like to come to the front, we're going to have an altar call. And this is not about what you have to think with respect to your neighbor, what your neighbor thinks of you or what you think of them. This is only about you and your relationship to your Father in Heaven. If you come to the front, it's not an indication that your life is more wretched than another. It's simply an indication that you're willing to put yourself out a little bit in, in a public way. Just so that God can really see and observe your heart. And there will be witnesses. And you're okay with that. You don't have to make any public statement. Any public confession. But if God puts it on your heart to come up to the front. We'll have a prayer. But meanwhile, let's, let's sing song 61. Oh.